All right. How's it going, everybody? Let me just turn my mic on real quick. How you guys doing this morning? Doing well? Well, I got to say, this is the uh, definitely, can you guys hear, is the mic on? No. No? All right, can we get the mic going? I'm just gonna, I'll just shout till it comes back on. There we go. But um, I got to say, this is actually the coolest backdrop I've ever had while getting to give a message. You know. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I want to get up there and preach from the elephant. But, um, but this morning, you guys, I wanted to talk to you about biblical grace. And what I mean by that is what grace would have meant to the writers of the first century church. Did I just hit something? No? But what, the, what the grace would have meant to the writers of the first century church and what people who were living in that first generation of Christianity would have understood by the term grace. And before I get started with the sermon today, I have a little bit of a confession to make. Because I'd love to take credit for this sermon, but I, I honestly, I can't. This sermon is actually the product of a mashup between a, a couple, a series of lectures I got to have at school last semester, and then another sermon that I heard preached by one of our sister churches out in Florida. And so for those of you who, who might not know, uh, I had the chance to start at USC last semester. And a uh, fun school, big school, a little bit, of a, little bit uh, different than Moore Park. But, um, <laughs> but it was a great class. But I had to fill a few GEs, and one of the options that I got to choose from was called History of the New Testament. And that was a really cool class. And basically, we looked at all the books in the New Testament. We broke down you know, why they were created, who were they created by, what were some of the main biblical themes going on, what were the contexts of the time. We looked at the historical lives of some key figures like Jesus, Paul, James, John, all those guys. We got to look at some books that um, either once were in the Bible and they're not anymore, or they've been excluded for various reasons. So I got to learn a lot. And during that semester, there was a couple lectures that really had the biggest impact on me by far. And what those lectures were on were on biblical grace. And it was on the historical context of what grace was. And so that's what I really want to show to you guys today. But what was really cool, have you, have you guys ever had uh, a time in your life where you feel like things kind of just line up and it had to have been God? Yeah. There. Well, this is one of those times for me. Because right around that same time, um, for those of you who don't know, I, I'm part of the uh, internship program that we offer here at CME. And like I said, we have a bunch of churches all over the country. And so I'm in a group chat with hundreds of interns across the U.S. And it's pretty common that they'll send links to different lessons or sermons that they hear that they find encouraging or challenging or convicting or whatever the case may be. And this one caught my attention because it was called Biblical Grace. And I got it from a friend out in Florida right around the same time I was going through this in school. So I thought, you know, I'll check it out and I'll see, I'll see what it looks like. And it was really cool because the sermon and what I was learning in class, they just meshed completely. And it was a great lesson for me. And since then, it's been a couple months now, and since, it's really been something to help revitalize and rejuvenate and flip my Christianity on its head. And it has been really encouraging and really powerful. And so my hope this morning is to share a little bit of that with you. So before we dive in, I just, want to, I just want to take a second to talk about grace, because grace is something that, if you're anything like me, I have a little bit of an issue connecting with grace sometimes. And I, I can understand it. I can relate to it uh, intellectually. And I, if someone were to ask me, I can lay out the parts. But it's a lot harder for me to live in grace and to go each and every day connected and rooted in the grace God has for me. 
I don't know if you're anything like me, but maybe you can, uh, maybe you can relate. And so I was thinking about why, and I'm sure for all of us there's probably a lot of reasons why, but I think one that we have in common is the society we live in today. And what I mean by that is we live here in America, great country, glad to be here, but we live in a society based on merit and performance, right? And what I mean by that is from the second you come into this world, you take your first breath, what do you learn from a young age, right? If you do the right things, you're a good boy or a good girl and you'll be rewarded. If you do the wrong things, you're a bad boy, bad girl, you'll be punished. Then you move on into school where you start learning that if I, do, if I you know, study hard, if I work hard, if I earn those grades, I'll get rewarded with high marks. Then you move on to college, right, and you start putting together resumes, which are basically just lists of good performances, and you'll hand them to somebody across a desk at a point, and if they deem you worthy enough, you'll be rewarded with a job. And then once you're in the job, if you outperform your employees, you'll get the promotion, at least in theory. That's not always how it works. <laughs> but that's the underlying theory that we operate on in our society. And it's very different than the underlying theory of the way people operated in the original societies in which the Bible was created. And so I want to go ahead and take a look at that now. But I have a question for you guys. Imagine, I'll just get, I just want a few brief responses here, but imagine that you're walking on the street, right, and a stranger comes up to you and says, you know what, excuse me, I, sorry to bother you, but I've been reading about the Bible and I'm interested in Jesus and God, but I just don't understand grace. Can you explain that to me? Can you help me understand what grace is? What would you say? If you had to give someone a quick response, what would you summarize grace as? Yeah, Douglas? Undeserving favor. Undeserving favor, absolutely, definitely. Lynette? Uh, a gift of forgiveness. A gift of forgiveness, absolutely. Both those things are um, components of grace. Both those things are part of what grace does for us. But, if we're, but they're a little bit different than what, the way grace was interpreted in the first century. And so if you were to try to describe grace in its original context, the best thing you could describe it as was a currency. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But before we do, I want to go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll give you guys a second to get there, and I'll put it on the screen as well. And the reason why I want to go to this passage, you guys, is there's a very complex and very well thought out system of how grace worked in the first century. And this reasoning and this dynamic underlies a lot of the framework in New Testament scripture. And so when I was being taught how to see this and break it down, this was the first scripture I was shown how to do that with. So right now I'm just going to read through it and we'll break it down in a moment. But it says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Verse 5. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we've kindled in you, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And we're not going to break it down quite yet. I'm sure you guys heard the word grace sprinkled in there a few times throughout. 
And it may seem a little random in how Paul writes it, but it's, it's anything but random. There's actually a very intentional and deliberate structure Paul's using here. But before I can highlight that, I wanna go ahead and explain what grace was in the first century and why Paul is using it here. So a little, little backstory to this part of scripture. This is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And in this section, he's, trying, he's writing to the Corinthians because he's trying to convince them to donate to something called the collection. And what the collection was, was it was a task that James, Peter, and John gave to Paul when he, visited, when he went to Jerusalem to go to the churches around the Mediterranean and collect some money from each church in order to donate it to the poor Christians in Jerusalem who were going, undergoing some intense persecution. So Paul originally agrees. And as he goes through to start for this collection, the church in Corinth offered to give him some money. And we don't know exactly why historically, but they didn't follow through on it. And about a year went by. And then at, th at that point, Paul writes a second letter to the Corinthians, urging them to complete the donation they'd earlier promised to give. So that's where we're going to leave it right now. And for right now, I want to go ahead and explain what grace was in the first century. Because this may seem a little interesting, but it actually, it wasn't the Christians that invented grace. It was actually the Romans. And grace existed a couple hundred years, at least, before the New Testament scriptures did. And here's what I mean. When the, Ro the Romans were a civilization faced with a very unique problem. I mean, imagine for a second that you're the Roman emperor. And imagine the task set before you. You're sitting on your throne in Rome, and you command the largest empire the world's ever seen. You've conquered the known world, and you're trying to hold it together for almost a millennium. How do you do that, right? Because at any given time, Rome controlled about 10 to 20 provinces. And what a, just in case, what a province was, was it was an area of land previously owned by another people that had been conquered by Rome and made under Roman authority. So you have, any one of, you have 10 to 20 provinces. And so what are you gonna do? If you're the emperor in Rome, your, your civilization spans three major continents, it spans a couple seas, it spans hundreds of rivers, and it contains millions of people. How do you keep a province a thousand miles that way under your control and a province a thousand miles that way and that way and that way under your control if they all rebel at the same time, <laughs> right? Because you might have a good army, but you can't send it everywhere at once. And this is ancient world technology. So they don't have planes, trains, and automobiles. You know, if they gotta go anywhere, it's gonna take them a while to get there. And so the answer that Rome created to this problem of how do they keep their empire unified and under control was grace. And it was a brilliant system. In fact, it was a system that was so integral to the Romans that some of their most ancient uh, and well-celebrated uh, philosophers like Cicero, Seneca, have been quoted in essays as saying that grace is the mortar that keeps the far-flung empire together. Seneca said that grace is the foundation of Rome. And it's interesting. And so I'll explain a little bit about what grace would have meant. So first I have, as it would have appeared uh, on the left side of the screen there, that's how grace would have appeared in the original New Testament writings. That's the Greek for it. And the way it was pronounced is katis. So that's what grace was, it was called katis. And in a Roman relationship of katis, there were always two people. There was always a benefactor and a client. And I'm sorry for the weird language, I'm, I'm using these terms because that's the terms the Romans use in their literature. But a benefactor was always someone in Roman society with wealth, with power, with prestige, and with authority. And a client was someone in Roman society without any of those things. So you can think of a benefactor as like a celebrity or a politician, a famous general, a client, as a peasant farmer or a poor day worker. 
So that, that was the two people that were involved in the relationship. And the relationship was always voluntarily initiated by the benefactor. So I'm sure you guys may already start to see a few connections here between Roman grace and biblical grace, and we'll keep going. Because like I said, it was a very well thought out system because it was so integral to the Romans. And they actually wrote a lot of literature on how to properly function grace and how to live honorably in a relationship of grace. And so they had very well thought out dynamics of how grace worked, and I want to take a second to look at those now. But they had three steps to their grace. And I want to direct your attention to the statue on the left-hand side of the screen first. That's a famous, this one's a picture of one in London, but you can find replicas of this statue from Portugal to Turkey, because that was the expanse of the Roman Empire. And what the Romans would do is every time they conquered a new province, they would build this statue in the city square in order to teach those citizens how to live by grace. Because people couldn't read or write, so the easiest way to teach them was to model a representation. And this is called the Statue of the Three Graces. And each one of those female figures there represents a leg in this little triangle here. And so I'm gonna break down the dynamics of how grace would have worked. Like I said, the first step was always initiated by the benefactor, and that was called kadis, and it's on the left there. It means gift given. And what this was is a benefactor would voluntarily bestow a portion of their wealth, a portion of their power and prestige and notoriety in society to a client who had not previously deserved it and had no power to pay it back. And the next step was called eukadis. And if you recognize this word, this is the word that Christians eventually took for communion. And you can, you can see the connections of why, because what eukadis means is thanksgiving. And it also translates in, in Latin as gift received. And so what this would have meant is the first step for the client, once the benefactor had initiated grace, the first step was for the client to receive it gratefully. And then, once that was done, the last step of grace in order to complete the relationship was called kadis again, but this time with a little different context. And this means gift returned. And what that meant was that after receiving the gift, the client, if they were honorable, would then respond out of that gift back to the benefactor, serving them in some way. And what this system served to keep Rome together for almost a millennia, and the secret was because it was genuine. Right. Both parties benefited here. And this was meant to be a constant, ever-growing cycle of grace in a relationship between two people. Because what would happen is as the benefactor gave grace and increased the standard of someone's life, that person would respond, serve back, and then in response for their service, the benefactor would give more grace, and then more service, and more grace, and it was just supposed to ever increase. And so I want to paint a little example of how this would have played out in Roman society. You know, pretend that I'm a, a wealthy merchant in Corinth. Uh, who am I going to pick on? I'll pick on, uh, I'll pick on Joe, because he's right here in the front, of course. But let's pretend Joe's a poor farmer and he lives outside the city walls in Corinth. <laughs> That's right. But let's say one day we're both in the market at Corinth. And I'm walking through and I see Joe with his fruits and his vegetables and I think, you know what? I think I might have some purpose for Joe. So I come over to him and I say, Joe, you know what? Close down your stall, put down your pitchfork. From today on, you're no longer a farmer. From now on, you're gonna come with me. And I'm gonna teach you my skills, I'm gonna teach you to walk in my ways, and I'm gonna put you in charge of many things. And what would happen is I would look at Joe and I would say, you know, Joe, if you're gonna come be part of my family, and if you're gonna come be associated with me, then those robes, 
they're not going to be fitting for you anymore. Why don't you leave those behind and here, I'll have my tailors come give you and your family new robes. And you know what, Joe? I'm looking at your shoes there, and I think, I got to be honest, you know, I think a man of your age could use more comfortable shoes. <laughs> totally kidding. But there you go. So here's some shoes from my family to you. And you know what, Joe? I saw your, your home outside, but that won't do, because that's outside the city walls. And there's no protection there. So here, why don't you come and take this house on the corner that I have, and you and your family may live there now. And I want you guys to think about something. And I, I know it's hard because we don't have the uh, experience, but imagine you're a client. You live in ancient Rome where there's no opportunity for upward mobility. You do what your father did before you and his father did before him. The only way you can be advanced in society is if a benefactor takes grace upon you. And when he does, not only your life is instantly changed in a moment, but the lives of your children and your children's children after that. Because Cadiz was never given to an individual. It was always extended to that person's household as well. And another thing is it could not be revoked. So it's pretty impressive. If you were a client and received that gift, your life was changed forever. So, now I, I wanna ask you guys a question because that's how grace functioned in the Roman world. And it served, it, it benefited the people they conquered because their lives were increased and it reinforced Rome because the response of grace is then to serve Roman masters. But I have a question for you guys. What does this mean for us today, right? What does it really matter how grace functioned in a different society 2,000 years ago? I love history, so I think it's interesting. Maybe you do too, and maybe you don't. But either way, I want to talk a little bit about what this means for us today. And so I want to go back. Now that we kind of get a little bit of that structure and how grace would have worked in ancient Rome, and this, I, want to, I want you to understand, this is the context that everyone would have had in the New Testament scriptures, because everyone grew up inside of Rome. And so I want to go back to that section of scripture where Paul was writing to Corinth, trying to convince them to follow through on that donation to the collection. And so what Paul does here is he breaks this section into two parts. In verses one through five, Paul is basically trying to convince the Corinthians to finish their donation by giving them the example of the churches in Macedonia. And then in verses six through nine, he says, do likewise. But look at the first thing that Paul says to them. He says, I want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. Yeah, see the connections there? It's that, that would have been Cadiz, and that would have, you know, gift given. So what Paul's doing here, any Corinthian that read this letter would have automatically understood. There's a, there's a flag here. God has initiated this relationship of Cadiz. What's the next thing Paul does? He writes about the response of the churches in Macedonia. You can read it there. I'm just going to summarize it. But he writes that despite undergoing intense persecution, they gave and gave more than they were able. And not only did they do that, but they begged for the opportunity to do so. What Paul's saying here is the, the Macedonians, they received God's grace, and then they responded out of it. They completed that relationship. And then in verse six, Paul turns his attention back to Corinth. And what's the first thing he says to them? I urge you to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. He's reminding them of that third step there. And what he's saying is you guys received the same grace and you started off right. You started off willing to give, but you didn't fall. You didn't quite complete 
that circle. And so he's urging them to respond to that. And he closes out the section by reminding them of the initial cadiz they were given. By saying, you remember that while you were, while you were poor and Jesus was rich, he gave himself for you. Yeah. And so he's trying to remind them there. And so I'm only going to go through this one for right now. But as I was studying this out in school, I have a wide list of scriptures where you can see this same system. It, 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 I, I thought so too. I liked it. So if you guys would like, just let me know and I can shoot you that list and you can see it play out in a lot of different places. Because, yeah, once you see it, you, you can't unsee it. <laughs> but now you guys, I only have, it's going to be a little bit shorter today, but I only have two key points. And I wanted to keep it short on purpose because I just wanted to get to the point. But I have two more scriptures that I want to go to because I believe that when we put these scriptures side by side, they really highlight and really paint grace well and help us understand it as it was meant to be. So we're gonna go there, we'll pull a few things from it, and then we'll wrap up. Wrap up. But here's the two scriptures I wanna to go to. 2 Timothy 1, 9, and Ephesians 2, 3 through 5. So I'm just gonna read them, and we'll kind of mix and mash them together. But starting in 2 Timothy, it says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. In Ephesians 2 now, says, Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even while we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You guys, I don't know where you may be at this morning. Maybe some of you aren't Christians today. Maybe some of you are brand new, and maybe some of you have been Christians longer than you care to admit. But wherever you are this morning, if you're anything like me, I have a tendency to read scriptures like these and gloss over the profound truths that they're saying to me. So maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't. But I want to encourage you, wherever you're at today, let your heart be softened. Please take a second to open up your ears and open up your mind to what this is really saying. Because I believe God's word is true. And I believe that this is truth here on the screen. But I want to look first at what, at what Paul says about our relationship with God. And I want to make something clear. God intentionally apportioned his grace for you before the beginning of time. And what that means is that before God ever spoke, let there be light. He already had planned the grace he would give you. And I want to make something very clear. He didn't do this because of anything you did to deserve it. In fact, he actually did this at the exact moment where we were dead in our sins, you and I. The Bible says we were deserving of wrath. And it was at that moment that God reached out his hand. And he did this because of his great love for you. He did it because he's rich in mercy. He did it because like a benefactor, he has a plan and a purpose for your life. Now, I want to be honest with you. I've gotten a couple months now to really pray and meditate and let this message sink in for me. And it's really helped change my Christianity. And it's, I've had a few insights I just want to share with you guys this morning about my own personal life with God. And I think that a lot of times I can suffer and I can suffer from a misunderstanding of grace, and I might recognize it intellectually, but I slip into an old bad habit of living. 
And here's what I mean by that. Here's, here's the misunderstanding I'm referring to. This is the misunderstanding. I don't know if any of you guys out there can relate to this, but I know I definitely can. And I, like I said before, I think it's really hard. You know, I think the society we live in, where everything is performance, everything is merit, everything is earning, it's really hard to live in a world like that 24-7 and then not let it bleed over into our relationship with God. And I think, like I said before, I think we can all understand grace, but living in it is a very different beast. Right? It's like giraffes and elephants. But, but here's what I notice in my life. Here's the habit I can slip into. I can think, you know what? If I just obey God well enough, if I just do my job good enough, then God loves me. Then those promises we just read are true. And obviously, I, I don't think any of us today would really try to argue that we can earn our salvation with God. The Bible is very clear. We, I didn't read it, but in that same chapter of Ephesians 2, the Bible says it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of man that no man, this not of works that no man may boast. So the Bible is very clear. You can't earn your way to heaven. But I can make little rules in my head, right? And I can think things like... Um, you know, if I just read my Bible every day for a week, right? If I just pray super hard this month, then God will love me, right? Then I'll be good enough. Then I'll be his son. And if you're anything like me, that system always caves in on itself. And it's a very simple purpose. Why? God never intended it to be like that. You know, and what I've noticed is that when I try to live by that system, it lands me in one of two places eventually every time. And the first place it can land me in is pride. Right. Because let's say I'll pick a, let's say reading my Bible every day for a month. All right, let's say I pick that, and if I just do that, God loves me. And then let's say I do it. Let's say I devote myself to it, and I, I go the whole month every day. Well, if I just earn my identity in God, why do I need Jesus in the first place? Right? Bible says a, a worker deserves his wages. If I've earned, then salvation isn't a gift. There's nothing I should be grateful for. It's merely what I'm owed. And it's not long before, let's say I'm in this mentality and I'm reading my Bible every day and then my friend comes to me and he says, you know what, Kyle, honestly, I've been busy, I've been out of it, whatever the case may be, and I haven't read my Bible in three days. Well, now I'm better than you. <laughs> that's how it is. <laughs> if Christianity worked like that, that's how it would be. Now I'm superior to you. Now God loves me more than you. And before you know it, you can go the way the Pharisees went. Pharisees were perfect at this. They were perfect at building their own religious rules and following them better than anybody else. <laughs> and what happened is eventually that led them so far from God, they couldn't recognize him when he was staring them in the face. Other side of this coin is guilt. So let's take my same example. Let's say reading the Bible every day for a month, and let's say, I, let's say I don't do it. Whatever happens, I miss a few days in there. Well, now I don't have that identity. Now I didn't earn it, right? How could God love me? I can't even read my, he did everything for me, and I can't even read my Bible for a couple days in a row? Why should I pray? Why should I try to say I'm sorry? Because if I was really sorry, I probably would have found the time to do it anyway, right? How could God love me? can never be good enough for God to love me. So I don't know if you guys can relate to any of that this morning. Oh, yeah. I believe you can. Yeah. But I want to make a point. 
No matter where that you end up in that system, I promise you, you will never get closer to God and you'll never be able to help anybody else in either of those places. And I want to make something very clear. I want to draw a line in the sand as clearly and as harshly as I can. This is not biblical. Living like this is not living a biblically accurate life according to scripture. Here's what is biblical. This is how God designed Christianity to be. And I want to draw your attention. I'm not going to click back there on the screen, but if you want, if you turn back to that 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 passage, the first thing you're going to see that Paul says is two things. And it's a very intentional and very specific order. It goes back to steps 2 and 3 of that Cadiz relationship we were talking about. God says, Paul says that God first saves us and then calls us to a holy life. The Bible is very clear. It does not say that he calls us to a holy life and then saves you once you're living it. It's not how it was designed to be. And I want to encourage you guys with something today. I think that we really miss out on how joyful and on how natural Christianity can be when we live it this way. Because the Romans had a very... I thought this was the most amazing thing to me when I was studying this out. The Romans had... I thought a really amazingly insightful revelation in their system of grace. Because the first step of the client wasn't to respond. Don't get me wrong, it was included, it was in there, but it wasn't the first thing. First things first. The first step was just to receive the gift gratefully. And this brings me, you guys, to my first point, my first application today. To truly live in God's grace, you have to first accept it. You guys, I only have one more point to make and one more observation that I've had in the last few months I wanted to share with you out of my own life. But I already hinted at it before. Like I said, I really believe that sometimes as Christians, we can try to run before we walk. And I think that when we do that, we really miss out. I feel like God's in heaven just like, dang, they're not seeing it. You know, they're just off a little bit. I just want them to see it, you know? And I feel like he's up there so desperately wanting us to connect with it. And here's what I mean. I, like I said, I think Christianity is so much more joyful, peaceful, natural, and fruitful than we let it be sometimes. Because we miss how God wants us to live it. And here's, here's what I mean. I want to be very clear about, with something about grace. Grace does not exclude obedience. The Bible says it's grace that leads a man to repentance. God intends grace to be the motivation for obedience. Then when we consider how deeply he's loved and cherished us, we respond naturally. Because I want you to think about what the Bible says about you. Some of the promises the Bible says about you. The Bible says that God knit you together in your mother's womb, that he knows the number of hairs on your head, that his thoughts towards you outnumber the grains of sand on the beach. And what has God said for you? God has said, I will move nations for you. What does God say about you? He says that you are my son and daughter. He has made us co-heirs. Co- Ephesians 2, 11, 2, 2, chapter 2, verse 11, says that we will be co-rulers in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. 
Imagine being a co-ruler with God. That's the identity God's poured out on you. You are his loved children. In fact, I want you to, I want you to think about what God's gone through for you. Think about, you know, if you're a parent in this room today, what would you do for your kids, right? What wouldn't you go through? What obstacle wouldn't you overcome? Well, look at what God's overcome. God went toe-to-toe with the devil, stared him in the face, and beat him. Then God went toe-to-toe with death, the final enemy, and beat him. Jesus went to hell, preached the gospel, and came back for you. That's what the Bible says about you. In Romans 8, the Bible says, I'm sure this is a famous scripture, I think we all know it, but it talks about how there's nothing in all creation, not angels, demons, powers, principalities, rulers, authorities, the height, depth, anything else in all creation that God will allow to stand between him and you. You know, I love, the image I always get when I read that scripture is actually of, uh, of Rocky. You know those final fights in Rocky, and they always go the same way, right? They always go, you know, Rocky starts getting beat up, and he, you know, he gets smashed around, and there's always the one eye that won't open, and, you know, and he's bloody. And... But then there's always that moment, right? There's always that moment where it kind of just clicks on. And you see it in Rocky's face, and he starts advancing, and the music starts playing, right? <laughs> And you're getting chills because you know that at this point, he's, not a, he's a force in nature. He's not a man. And there's nothing that's going to stand between him and victory. That's how God feels about you. And there's nothing. Not Mr. T. Not Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> there's nothing that's going to stand between him and you. That's the identity that God has poured out to you. And he has given it freely. And I really believe you guys, it's hard to maintain that mentality. It really is. But we have a responsibility to fight, to kick, to scratch, to claw, to bite, to do whatever you gotta do to keep that mentality because it's biblical. Because it's how God intended our lives as Christians to be. And I believe that when you connect with that, that's where every act of Christian service and obedience flows out from. So my final point to you guys, and then we'll close out, is simply that grace is the foundation for Christian obedience. Thank you.